0: Well, where do you turn in the Bible to find the beginning of the Christmas story? Maybe you think of Matthew chapter 2, excuse me, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, both great places in the Gospels to turn to see about God fulfilling His promises through sending Jesus down to earth. We often hear Isaiah chapter 7 in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9 read, but long before the prophecies of Isaiah, long before the prophecy contained in Psalm chapter 2. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, that's where the Christmas story begins. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the first announcement of Christmas. Of course, Genesis 1 and 2, God's plan for creation, God creating Adam and Eve to live in perfect fellowship with Him in a perfect place where there was no sin, no disease, no death there in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship with God, with one another, and with all of creation. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, they sinned against God. They disobeyed the command of His Word. They rejected His loving authority over them. And they were banished from life in the garden, sent away from the presence of God, but sent away not without hope. For in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that first announcement of Christmas This promised one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. You see, Genesis 3 started a a story where he traced the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Through God's covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we make our way to see more of who this promised one would would be. And we see here this morning, that story continuing to unfold in Genesis chapter 49, this promised serpent crusher would be a victorious warrior and a king, a warrior king that they would be waiting for. Now, Genesis 49 may not strike you at first as a passage connected to Christmas, but as we look at Jacob blessing his 12 sons at the end of his life, we see that he has hope as he faces death. There's a hope for the future that's found in a coming king. You see, hope, don't mistake it for being optimistic. Like, I hope it snows in Charlotte this Christmas. That's a good thing to be optimistic for, to desire. But when we use hope as Christians, we're not talking about our best wishes for the future. We're not talking about just trying to view things with optimism. You see, hope has an object. And the Christian hope has the object of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Him. Our hope as we face death is the same hope that Jacob has, a hope in a promised king from God, a hope in God's grace and mercy to us through this king. You see, this hope is attached to, in Genesis 49, a king that would come from Judah, a king that would come from Judah, a king that would look like Joseph. So we see in Genesis chapter 49 this morning, as Jacob approaches his death, he's filled with hope in God and his promises. And this morning, as the people of God in the church look at Genesis 49, as we consider Jacob's hope for the future, let's consider the hope that we've been given as Christians in King Jesus. The main idea that I want us to see in Genesis chapter 49, as we look back and look forward to Jesus, here's the main idea if you're taking notes. Look forward in hope to the blessing that comes from our righteous King. Look forward in hope to the blessing that comes from our righteous King. Go ahead and turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Genesis chapter 49. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, the best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 49 in that pew Bible is found on page 42. We say this every week. It's not a a special kind of post-Black Friday deal or Christmas deal. Uh, This is uh, something we want to offer every week. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that Bible is yours. Take it home as our gift to you. Read it this morning. Uh, Connect with one of us at the door afterwards or any member here. We'd love to read the Bible with you and help you see more of who God is in Christ. A little bit of context with this passage, The, the theme of blessing, it's been present throughout the book of Genesis. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and see God's blessing on Adam and Eve, calling them to the blessed life of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth for the glory of God. We, we've seen that blessing in jeopardy. At least that's the way it seemed in Genesis chapter 3 when they sinned against God. But the rest of the story of Genesis is about God redeeming that blessing of his presence. We track, we track with that blessing through the story of Abraham, Isaac, and here this morning with Jacob. And now at the end of Jacob's life, we see blessing again as he turns to bless his 12 sons. Now certainly it was typical at that time, for a father right before his death to gather all of his sons to bless them, to give them a share and in inheritance. But make no mistake, this was not an ordinary or typical blessing. We're talking about a blessing coming from Jacob, whose name was Israel, one who personally had the Lord revealed to him, one who wrestled with the Lord, one who directly received revelation from the Lord, hearing the Lord speak receiving covenant promises from God. So this blessing is connected to God's promises, His covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So hear this chapter like a prophetic revelation from God to Jacob. We, we see in Genesis 49, it's prophecy. Jacob speaking like a prophet, declaring what the future of the tribes of Israel will look like. So when he says in verse 1, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen in the days to come. This is prophecy, meaning in the days that are in the future, in the distant future, their descendants would have a life beyond Egypt, as the Lord had already promised to bring them back to the promised land of Canaan. Now, all 12 sons, they're blessed in this chapter, but the highlight and the main concern in this blessing is the rise of two great tribes, from Judah and from Joseph. And the blessing of these two sons in particular, it looks forward to the coming king of Israel. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We'll cover the other brothers, but we're going to spend most of our time looking at the blessing given to Judah and to Joseph. This king would come from Judah. He'd look like Joseph. As we consider the the hope of Israel, in chapter 49, may we consider the hope of all Christians found in King Jesus. We're going to split this chapter of this passage or portion of this chapter this morning with two ways we find hope. And the first way we find hope in verses one Through 12 is this way. Find hope in the king who brings blessing to the nations. Find hope in the king who brings blessing to the nations. And these final blessings from Jacob, we see bright moments, we see dark moments from the history of his family. And as Jacob turns to his first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, we are reminded of some dark moments moments. Now the cultural expectation of that time, as we've covered before, is that the oldest son would receive the greatest blessing, meaning the greatest share in the inheritance of their father. But as we've seen time and time again, God is not bound to cultural expectations. The theme's already been established in Genesis, that the blessing does not follow the natural or cultural line of the firstborn. The blessing was a gift and not a right. So containing these blessings, it's almost like a type of evaluation of the lives of each son. And beginning with Reuben, the firstborn, we see an evaluation of why he will not receive the greatest blessing. Look at verse 4. Unstable is water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch It's almost like Jacob in the middle there, he went up to my couch, He's, he's recounting what happened back in chapter 35, that dark scene of sexual immorality there from Reuben with his father's concubine. That act of sexual immorality, it wasn't just an evil act of immorality, it was also an attempt to usurp the authority of his father, and as a result of that, he lost his birthright. the reader might guess, if you're reading through Genesis the first time, you might think, okay, Reuben's out, on to the next two, Simeon and and Levi, what about them? Would they get the greatest share of the blessing? But we see they are both passed over as well due to their past violence that we saw back in chapter 34 when they took vengeance and violently slaughtered the men of Shechem. Here's Jacob's evaluation of verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The promised king, the prince of peace, would not come from the line of these violent, vengeful men. They would not become leaders of Israel. They stood for vengeance and not for justice. Their descendants would be dispersed throughout Israel. They would not have power. And as their stories unfold in the rest of the Old Testament, the tribe of Simeon all but disappears from the story. And the tribe of Levi, while they go on to be the priesthood, they get no allotment or possession there in the promised land. The greatest blessing, it would not go to them, but rather the greatest blessing, went to their brother Judah. Now you may remember some of what we saw earlier in the book of Genesis with Judah and think, well, Judah was no better than them. And hey, my goodness, look at Judah's dark, terrible past. Back in chapter 38, he used and abused and mistreated his daughter-in-law Tamar after his son died, his son's widow. He mistreated her. And then later, thinking she was a prostitute. Slept with her and impregnated her. So you might think, if you're reading this the first time, all right, Jacob, keep it moving and keep on going down the line to the next son. So why would Judah receive the greatest blessing? See what stands out, we've known this before. What stands out about Judah in that very chapter in 38, where his evil acts are recorded, is that he repented. He repented of his sin. He admitted his, his guilt. He turned away from sin. That's what repentance is, a a turning away from sin. And that changed everything in his life and in his future. What we saw from from Judah after that moment of repentance was a transformed and changed man. And the rest of the story, he showed back up as a self-sacrificing servant. Later on, offering his own life in the place of his brother Benjamin's life. I think this tells us, again, something important about repentance. There is no pathway to a blessed life in the Lord apart from repentance. There's no way to live the blessed life in the Lord without first repenting of your sin against God. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you weren't born a Christian. I know a lot of people think that. They think, well, I was born a Christian because I wasn't born Jewish or Muslim. I was born going to church around Christmas. There's no such thing as being physically born a Christian. You have to be spiritually reborn by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What that means, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, there was a moment you first believed, when you first repented of your sin against God, That's an ongoing thing in our lives. Pastor Johnny led us this morning in a prayer of confession. And so Christians, we are to, in an ongoing manner, grieve our sin against God. We're not home yet. We're not to glory yet. This side of glory, we will sadly struggle with sinning against God and offending Him. But the change in the life of a Christian is that we're grieved by that. We're not resigned to living like that. And by God's grace, we continue to repent. You see, repentance is a turning away from sin, and when you turn away from sin, you're turning to seek a life in the blessing of God. It means I want God more than I want sin. I want Christ more than I want whatever sin it is that I'm temporarily finding pleasure in. The Christian life begins with repentance and faith, and the Christian life continues down the path of repentance. If you're here this morning, I wonder, have you ever repented of your sin? I don't mean have you ever felt guilty for your sin. Lots of people who aren't Christians may feel guilty for their sin, but the difference between a a momentary guilt that goes right back to sinning versus a godly guilt that shows that you've sinned against God means that ultimately you'll turn away. You won't be resigned to living in sin. There's a, a real godly sorrow, meaning you see your sin more as just something that in the mirror you feel guilty about, but most importantly in God's evaluation that offends and dishonors him and that you've, by God's grace, changed your mind about sin. Agreeing with him in his word that sin is treason against the most high God and seeking his help to live in ways that honor him and obey his word. You know, if you haven't repented of your sin... That's something you can do today. Repentance doesn't mean cleaning yourself up, working on yourself, getting a list of resolutions, trying to work through those, trying to come to church for 12 months and maybe you'll live a better life. Repentance is a moment of turning. It's a moment. It's a moment by God's grace to say, God, I, I can't save myself, my good works, and any sort of merit that I want to be tempted to rely on. They're not ultimately enough to please you. And God, I repent. I turn to you. Where else can I go for forgiveness? Where else can I go from salvation? That's something you can do today: is repent to put your faith in Jesus. And I hope if you haven't done that, that you'll talk to someone who brought you this morning. If you don't know anybody here, talk to one of your, our members around you, or talk to any of our pastors at the door afterward. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's a good moment for us to consider: how often do we find ourselves repenting of sin? How often does that show up in our times of personal prayer, where we take a moment to stop, to slow down from our busyness, to ask God to reveal our hurtful ways to us, to confess sin to Him, and to seek His grace? You see, a mark of spiritual maturity is not that we repent less and less. A mark of spiritual maturity is that we repent more and more. We're more sensitive to sin. We're deeply grieved more and more often by the ways that we offend God. Brother and sister, ask God to give you a sensitive heart towards sin and a desire to please Him. Well, look at how Jacob begins blessing Judah there in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Remember, again, this is prophecy, so we're going to see a lot of imagery here like what we'd see even in the book of Revelation of images connected to prophecy. And Judah's future here is pictured as a victorious warrior returning from battle and receiving the praise of his brothers. Now, most of what we've seen in the book of Genesis so far is the praise of the brothers going to Joseph. That's the dream they received, that his brothers would bow down to him, and they already have in the book of Genesis three different times. But now we read, that the tribe of Judah would be the one whom the rest of Israel would praise and bow down to. Judah and his descendants would be exalted above the rest of the family of Israel. The house of Judah, they will defeat the enemies of God's people just as a lion grabs its prey by the neck. We see in verse 8, "...so shall Judah's descendants grab the neck of their enemies." This language of of neck of the enemy, it shows up later in the Old Testament with a descendant of Judah, the greatest king of Israel, David. In Psalm chapter 18, verse 40, David thanks God for his victory over enemies saying, you gave me my enemies' necks. A theme of a victorious warrior coming from Judah, it's seen there in verse 9 as a, a metaphor is given to describe Judah. Look there at verse 9. You see the metaphor. Judah is a lion's cub. This prophetic image of a a lion, it first becomes associated with Judah and it's descendants right here in verse 9. This image and metaphor, it will stand out in the rest of the Bible as the Messiah becomes called the Lion of Judah. Judah will be exalted. He will be mighty. From him will come a, a mighty warrior. And in verse 10... We get even more detail. This mighty warrior, he'll be a king. More images there in verse 10. We're introduced to a scepter and a staff. Those are royal items belonging to a king. Through Judah, the covenant promises to Abraham will be fulfilled. Kings will come from his line. And certainly a a king that they will be waiting for will be unlike any other king this looks forward, I think, certainly to the kingdom of David, his great empire there in Israel. But this prophecy couldn't be fulfilled with David, ultimately. Ultimately, it looks even further into the future. Listen to how this king is described in verse 10. David couldn't ultimately meet this description. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a lot there in verse 10. Track with me here. The house of Judah will hold the scepter, will hold the staff, meaning kings will come from that line until the one to whom it belongs comes. This king from the line of Judah that they're waiting for, he will receive a tribute and obedience not just From the nation of Israel. At the end of verse 10, we see in the plural there, peoples. This coming king would receive obedience from the peoples, meaning the nations. That wasn't fulfilled in the kingship of David. Who's this coming king to whom a tribute belongs, the one who would have a tribute from all nations brought to him? Who's this coming king? would have the obedience of the peoples, the obedience of all nations at his feet. Well, it says here, the one to whom it belongs, the lion of Judah, the long-expected Messiah of Israel. His name is King Jesus. Jesus descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of that tribe. In the passage we read this morning in our congregational reading, which I love reading scripture with you all, and we try to line it up often with the passage that's going to be preached, Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, last book of the Bible. It looks back on the first book of the Bible. It's all connected, all 66 books. It looks back on Genesis chapter 49, Revelation 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Down in Revelation 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. This is looking forward. It's an announcement of the good news of Christmas. Jesus is the king from the tribe of Judah who came to rule forever. The eternal son of God came down to earth and he was born in Bethlehem. Now we know Bethlehem's in Israel, but you know what part of Israel Bethlehem is in? The land of Judah. There in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Jesus, the one who came to rule, whose rule would know no geographic boundaries. Jesus, the one who came to receive obedience, not just from Israel, but from the nations to the ends of the earth. Indeed, him commissioning his disciples to go and make disciples among the nations to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the victorious warrior. He's the one, the only one, who conquered sin and death. He did this by dying on the cross and he proved that he conquered sin and death because on the third day he rose from the dead. No one else has ever gotten up from the dead to never die again. Jesus is the only one who went to death, tasted death, and then he rose from the dead showing that his sacrifice on the cross to pay for sin was accepted by God. His sacrifice for sin, the only way that you personally can be forgiven of your sin against God. You see, Jesus, this king from Judah, he will save and rescue anyone who would repent of their sin and turn to him and seek mercy and grace and forgiveness at his feet by faith in him. The one that Israel was waiting for, he has come. You see, they looked forward, but where you and I are at in history, we look back. He's already come. He's already done what needed to happen the greatest work that needed to happen has already been accomplished. Meaning Jesus' finished work on the cross. We rest in what has already been done. We look back to Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, and we look forward in hope that He will continue to be with us, and we look forward to the second advent, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. You see, if all who put their trust in Jesus, they will find eternal prosperity in his presence because the reign of king jesus brings prosperity to everyone who lives under his rule i love these images in verses 11 and 12 these images in verses 11 and 12 tell us what the reign of this king will be like what it will be like to live under his righteous rule you see his reign is one of prosperity he will bring prosperity wherever he goes. He came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. His rule begins a new age of prosperity, described there in verses 11 and 12. Wine, and I'm talking to Baptists, but hear me on this. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of blessing and prosperity. It's a symbol, it's what we see here wine, a symbol of blessing prosperity. So the images here of choice vines and wine, it communicates an abundance of blessing, happiness, joy, peace, celebration, fellowship. There will be an abundance of blessing and joy and peace and righteousness and fellowship for all who live under the reign of this King Judah. In verse 11, we see the image of binding a foal to the vine and the donkey to the choice vine. In verse 12, we read, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Again, prophetic images that picture a king who's full of strength and power. Under this king's reigns, even the choice vines are so abundant and so common and so easily found that they can be used for such a common task as hitching a donkey to it. You wouldn't say, well, we're not going to use that choice vine. Take this donkey over to this dying vine over here because there'll be so many choice vines you can just hitch that donkey up to. That's the image there, an abundance. Under this king's reign, there is such an abundance of wine that you would use it like water, washing your garments with it. That image may seem strange because usually you wash your garments with water, not a bottle of Chardonnay. But the image here is that this king will make wine flow like water in abundance? What kind of king can make wine flow like water? Does that sound familiar? Christian, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, verses 2, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the first miracle of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John is Him turning water into what? Wine. That was an announcement, that miracle declaring King Jesus was ushering in a new age. Who else can turn water into wine? Who else could make wine, abundance of blessing, flow? Jesus turned water into wine, announcing that a new age was being ushered in with his coming. A new age was being ushered in where there would be an abundance of blessing and prosperity. He was showing them this long-awaited King of Israel. All the way back to Genesis 49 was their present in Jesus. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, by God's grace, we've received the King they were waiting for. The abundance of blessing they longed for and anticipated. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know that blessing now. You see, the greatest blessing we can have, the greatest prosperity we can know I know as Americans, we get confused on this so often. And so often we try to weave Jesus in with the the material blessing and prosperity that we desire and long for even selfishly often. But the greatest blessing we can know, it's a spiritual blessing. It's the blessing of having your sins forgiven and therefore sin out of the way so that you and I can know God. It's the blessing that the Apostle Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Brother and sister in the Lord, to know God is to know blessing. To know who He is in Jesus is to know blessing. What more motivation and ambition do we need to give ourselves, our lives, to knowing Him more than knowing that, that walking in the knowledge of God is the blessed life? The more we know Him, the more we walk in joy, the more we walk in peace, the more we walk in fellowship with the God who created us. Let's consider a second way we find hope in Jesus in the last part of this chapter in verses 13 through 28, a second way. Find hope in the King who rules in righteousness. Find hope in the King who rules in righteousness. Most of the content of Jacob's blessing has to do with Judah and then later with Joseph for the prophecies of their future has the greatest shape on God's redemptive work in the future. So we'll briefly look over the other sons here. Not much is said about a number of them, but we're mainly going to look in this section at the blessing given to Joseph. Now, this passage is somewhat structured by birth order, but not exactly. Uh, Rather, they're listed according to their mother. The blessings begin with Leah's children in verses 3 through 15. Uh, then the son of, of Bilhah, who is Rachel's maid. Then the two sons of Zilpah, who was Leah's maid, followed by another son of Bilhah. And then finally at the end, two sons of Rachel from verses 22 through 27. Now, except for Joseph, these blessings, they're brief to the other brothers. And then Jacob, he, he briefly pronounces in each of them a future of prosperity and blessing. So listen to each of these, a, a blessing of uh, excuse me, a future of prosperity and blessing. In verse 13, Zebulun. Zebulun would prosper through trade from the sea. And verses 14 through 15, Issachar settled in a fertile land. He's pictured as a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He recognizes that the land he's given is good and pleasant. His descendants would end up as serfs, though, laboring that fertile land and like a donkey would work for others. In verses 16 and 18, we see the blessing on Dan, his descendants. With a mixed future compared to a serpent, there'll be snake-like behavior, yet they will judge. In verse 19, Gad will be attacked by raiders, yet they will become skilled warriors. In verses 20, Asher's descendants will have a prosperous future by enjoying rich food and royal delicacies. In verse 21, Naphtali is likened to a doe that will flourish and be fruitful, bearing beautiful fawns. And then skip down to verse 27. Benjamin will be a ravenous wolf, again a prophetic image of, of mighty warriors that will conquer and divide spoil. Each of these other brothers are given a future that show prosperity, blessing, and might in battle. Each are blessed, And not all of these sound like blessings, but uh, again, it's an evaluation of their lives. Each is blessed in that they're a part of the people of Israel, of Jacob. And through these tribes together, God will spread blessing and prosperity to the nations through the people of Israel living under His rule. The main focus here, though, in the last part of the chapter, is on the blessing in verse 22, verses 22 through 27 to Joseph. Judah, he was given the metaphor of a lion cub. Here, Joseph is given a metaphor in verse 22. He is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The image here is of a fruitful tree with plenty of water. So fruitful that the branches are extending over a wall, kind of drooping with fruit. The image here is one that we see throughout the Old Testament and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus of a righteous man flourishing like a tree planted by a river. The righteousness of Joseph would be seen in his descendants. Ultimately, this righteousness seen perfectly in Jesus. The content we see in verses 23 and 24, it looks back on the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph had faced much trouble and persecution in his life. And verses 23 and 24 recounts the past persecution from his brothers, recounts what he suffered at the hands of Potters' wife and false accusation and being wrongly imprisoned. Joseph was afflicted, yet he remained steadfast in persecution. Verses 23, starting there, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Joseph's perseverance in persecution came from the Lord. came from the mighty one of of Jacob. And looking back on God's past blessing, transitions in verses 25 to 26 to look forward to a future of continued blessing From God Almighty. Jacob calls on God to bless his descendants after him. And consider as I read this, this is what stands out about this blessing on Joseph. Consider the repetition of the word blessing. Listen for it here in verses 25 and 26. By the God of your Father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers jacob is calling out again and again for blessings even greater that was known to abraham and isaac to be on the head of joseph and his descendants Now remember this blessing of Joseph, it doesn't just look at his descendants in the near term. I think the blessings of Joseph and indeed his life is a foretaste of the blessing and glory that will come. And so we have to read the story of Joseph typologically. That's a very fancy way of saying his life pointed to something greater, a blessing yet to come. Ultimately, his life pointed to Jesus. Jesus, we'd see Joseph, in the life of Joseph, his character when Jesus came. You see, in Joseph, we see a type of Jesus. King Jesus will look like Joseph. This coming king will be a shepherd like Joseph, a stone for his people providing shelter the way that Joseph provided shelter for the people of Israel in famine. Like Joseph, this king would carry the theme of humiliation that led to exaltation. Joseph's faithfulness and righteousness pointed to a coming king who would be perfectly righteous and perfectly faithful in all of his ways. A righteous man flourishing like a tree planted by water, that pointed to Jesus. Joseph's righteousness had brought the persecution and attacks of his enemies from him. He was attacked by his brothers and by Potiphar's wife because he was doing what was right. So it would be with this coming king. Jesus, one afflicted for his righteousness, yet remaining steadfast in persecution, not uttering a word against his enemies, but rather crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Joseph received the greatest blessing, and Jacob prayed for a blessing even greater than what Abraham and Isaac received. Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, Jesus, the beloved son of God, received from God a blessing, the name that is above every other name. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, humbled like Joseph, even death on a cross. And just like Joseph was exalted, verse 9 of Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name That is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Jacob was waiting for his brothers and his family to bow. Jesus, at his name, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Joseph, he was waiting for praise. And ultimately, the line of Judah, waiting for praise from the rest of the family. We see here the name of Jesus. Every tongue would confess that he is Lord. Every tongue would praise him to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jacob and his sons looked forward in hope. They looked forward in anticipation of this king who would come and bring blessing and abundance of prosperity. They looked forward to the king who would come and reign in righteousness in Israel. Today, the people of God, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we look back on this king. He's already come. In Him we find forgiveness of sins, peace with the God who created us. The peace on earth that Jesus brought was first and foremost a spiritual peace with God. We're no longer at war with Him because of our sin against Him. Rather, we've been taken from being enemies to being His friends through the blood of Jesus and faith in Him. Today, the people of God look back on this King who laid down His life as a sacrifice to pay for our sin. But we don't just look back. Christianity isn't just about history. Presently we look up, we look back, and we look up above this world. We live life under the sun, but we look up to the one who rules over the sun, the son of God. We come to him and pray in the name of Jesus. We look to him for wisdom and strength. We regularly come in the name of Jesus, confessing our sins against God. We find hope in Jesus, peace in Jesus. And we don't just look back, and we don't just look up, we look forward. We have a future. You see, we can face our death with hope. Chuck, I'm so thankful for the testimony of your mom. You know, we need the senior saints here to teach us young ones what it looks like to live with hope. How many decades was she a member here, Chuck? What did she join the church? 1958. Sitting here in these pews. These pews were constructed in 1953. Since 1958 sitting, singing, rejoicing. Some of y'all fall asleep during my sermons. I know they're long, but Edie didn't fall asleep. (laughs) Edie would smile and sing and rejoice in God. I looked so forward to talking to her at this door every Sunday afterwards. She had nothing to say but how beautiful the service was every single Sunday. See, there are people who teach us to live well like those senior saints, and those also who teach us how to die well, to die with hope. To know that this life is not all that there is. This life has suffering and sorrow, and we look up to Jesus for help, and we look forward to the day that suffering and sin and sorrow will be no more. Brother and sister in Christ, we have every reason to have hope this morning. We have every reason to find joy, not in passing circumstances, but in our risen, reigning, and one day, hopefully soon, returning Savior. As we celebrate Christmas, which this year is on a Sunday morning, we don't just look to His coming. This Sunday morning we'll celebrate the 25th of December. What we celebrate every Sunday morning the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look back at Christmas, we look up to the reigning Jesus and we look forward to His return. So as we approach Christmas together as a church family, may we find hope in Jesus to look back, to look up, to look forward in anticipation of God's goodness to us in Christ in this life and in the next life. He is with us, and therefore, we can rejoice. Our hope is sure. We find hope in the blessing of knowing Jesus in this life, and we find hope in the righteous rule of our Savior now and forevermore. We find hope that Christ is ours forevermore. Amen. Let's bow and pray. Father, we ask that you would turn us away from finding false hope and seeking false hope here in this passing, present world. Turn us away from seeking hope in the mirror or in the person next to us. Lord, we ask you to turn our, our minds and hearts to you, to your precious promises in Christ, and that we would be filled with hope in who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we pray you'd strengthen us to regularly look back to the cross in the empty tomb, and to be reminded of the joy of our salvation, to be reminded where our power comes from, from the risen and reigning life of Jesus. Help us regularly to look up. Father, how often do we look down and inside of ourselves? Father, we pray by the strength of your Spirit to look up to Jesus, to find joy in Him, to find help from Him, wisdom from Him, and hope in Him. And Father, point our hearts forward in faith that would fight against our unbelief, and in hope that would fight against despair. May we rejoice in Jesus that Christ is ours, all by your grace, forevermore. In his name we pray, amen.